0: Welcome to Liberated Porch. I'm your host, Kit Morgan, a licensed social worker and therapist. I sit down with guests to discuss finding liberation through social justice and mental health. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. Sarah Oki, and we talk about addiction recovery through a harm reduction type standpoint. Dr. Sarah Oki has a PhD in clinical psychology with a decade of experience conducting scientific research on substance use and delivering therapeutic interventions for individuals with mental health problems. Sarah has authored numerous journal articles presented at national conferences and has taught multiple college-level psychology courses. She's an advocate for spreading trustworthy and data-driven information in the community so individuals can use science to help them decide what is best for themselves. Thank you so much for joining today, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me, Kit. It's wonderful to talk with you. Oh, for sure. I am so glad that I found your Instagram because whenever I saw the content that you were putting out about harm reduction, and just in a really fun and easily accessible way. I was just like, yes, <laughs> like, we need more voices like this.
1: Oh, that that that's so kind of you. Thank you. It's so interesting how I started that Instagram account. I've been searching for pages that have science and harm reduction and really quality information on social media. And I couldn't find it and I I was trying to search for all of the handles you know I was doing my due diligence and research as I as I like to do and there was just very few out there and so I decided to start my own and and within that I found a you know a community like you included who is really passionate about science and providing information that uh, is backed by research to the community and Um, it's it's really beautiful. Oh, yeah, for sure. And
0: I mean, whenever I'm working with clients, a lot of times clients are getting their psychoeducation from social media now. Mm -hmm. And whenever looking at getting the most research, or the newest research, I should say, you know, we can get that from academic journals. But at the same point, reading academic journals isn't really accessible for people
1: no the language is complicated and it's most often behind a paywall so Mm -hmm. if you don't want to pay forty dollars to read a long kind of boring and complicated article then yeah you're 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 kind of out of luck
0: yeah and all of the language in it too people aren't really taught this unless if they had a statistics class. And a lot of times people don't get a statistics class unless if they are in a certain field and are going to college and getting statistics. And so because of that, I mean, there's been a lot of spreading of misinformation about Mm -hmm. science because of
1: lack of statistic education. I really like that you bring that up. I think that's so important. And Right. Even when you're looking at articles, the quality of the articles, the limitations of what they did, the stats that they did, uh, there, there's so much nuance in the articles that sometimes gets lost when you don't have that background or when you're reading a, you know a media or a news article that talks about that research article. And then before you know it, some information that's not accurate is is being spread all over the place and when you look at the the journal article or the research paper it's not really what it's saying so there's there's a lot of work to be done
0: yeah i mean addiction is very nuanced i think that you know looking at things from a black and white perspective can sometimes bring people a certain amount of comfort because it seems like there's more solutions rather than nuances and then people kind of like that kind of comfort blanket but at the same point black and white isn't really gonna be solving what some of these very complex issues are
1: yes yeah everything just like everything else in life, substance use and addiction is not black and white. There's so much gray in between. And even when you look at addiction or substance use disorder in itself, there's a full spectrum of really mild substance use disorder all the way to really, really severe substance use disorder. And it's really common for us to only pay attention to the really severe substance use disorder when in reality, most people who have substance use problems generally fall in the mild portion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just also when we take a step back and look at our culture and our society. I mean, substance use is part of so many things that we do. It's part of celebrations. It's part of holidays and happy hours and, you know, Super Bowl advertisements. Substance use is everywhere. And so then when we, we try to create these black and white buckets, it, it just, a lot of things get overlooked.
0: How could people start to know or become aware that they may have a mild substance use
1: disorder rather than let's say casual substance use Hmm. so when people have that's a great question when people have a substance use disorder as diagnosed or as a mental health professional or health professional would would diagnose it would be within the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders dsm-5 And within that, there are different categories. So if you have a mild substance use disorder, then you would likely experience a couple problems with your use. So that could be that you're using substances in larger amounts than you originally intend to. That could mean that you have a desire to cut down, but you end up always drinking or smoking anyways, it could mean that you have a tolerance for it. So you have to use more than you originally did. It might mean that you spend a lot of time thinking about it, or you notice that you're having persistent problems with your family or with work. Or you might not be doing activities that you used to do without using substances. And you don't have to have all of these things, right? If you have all of these things, that would be considered really severe substance use problems. But if you're noticing problems with your use, even just a couple of them, then that's an indication that you might want to turn towards what's going on and take a look at it with curiosity. So that way you don't end up having more and more problems down the road. I think your question was, how do you know if you have mild, you might have a mild mm-hmm. problem rather than casual use. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that distinction. If you're, if you're experiencing problems with your use, then that's problematic. Yes. If you're not experiencing problems with your use, if you're, you know, having a night out, you wake up feeling fine, didn't have any problems with, you know, didn't have any fights, your your body feels healthy, you're able to rest and recuperate, you don't feel like you have to use again, or that's the only time you're having fun. Like, those are the things that kind of differentiate whether you have healthy use or unhealthy use.
0: What have you noticed in the work that you've done about, like, have, have you noticed that there are some common factors for people early on in substance use disorders that they may be sharing in common with some of those early signs?
1: Hmm. You know, I, I think that's a great question. And that really goes to, um, Just this idea that a lot of people who have substance use disorders or who have problems with their use don't, well, I mean, 93% of people who meet criteria for substance use disorders never goes and gets treatments. And Mm -hmm. of those that do actually get treatment, it ends up, you know, they wait until it's really, really severe. Mm -hmm. The primary work that I have done with individuals with substance use disorders, it's when it's super severe.
0: (laughs) Right. Because they're
1: waiting for so long because they Feel shame about getting treatment because they don't want to be sober when they get treatment. And that's the only treatment approach or, you know, Mm -hmm. one of the most pervasive treatment approaches out there. Mm -hmm. They don't know where to go. It's too expensive. So there's so many barriers to people receiving treatment. And unfortunately, a lot of the people don't receive treatment until it's the worst that it could get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that
0: a lot in the work that I've done as well. My first job out of grad school, I was working at an inpatient chemical dependency treatment. And, Mm -hmm. and so, you know, watching folks who were detoxing from a lot of different kinds of substances. And so that that was very eye opening to see that. And then whenever I started transitioning out of inpatient work and then started working in outpatient work. Then I started realizing, I was like, oh, this has some challenges in and of itself because of You know, doing some of these standardized assessments, for folks who are listening here, what a standardized assessment is, is now people get something called like a PHQ-9 or a GAD-7. And these different kinds of assessments, they assess for anxiety and for depression. But there's also standardized assessments that can be done for substance use as well. And a couple of the popular ones in New York State where I'm at is TAPS. And audit for substance use assessments. And so, getting a read on these assessments can help me know more about a person's use and how it's affecting a person's life. And, you know, and I'll talk with folks about that. But because there has become this idea ingrained in our society about what a substance use disorder looks like. Even in reflecting on some of these impacts, it's hard for a person to recognize that there is a spectrum of mild to severe substance use disorder because of showing the extremes Mm -hmm. in education about what could happen if a person became dependent upon a substance or substances.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of fear there. Substance use disorders are mental health disorders, but the Mm -hmm. way that our society and our system has treated individuals with substance use disorders have been criminalized, immoral. So really there's just huge kind of break of how we see other mental health problems like depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety and PTSD and substance use disorders. And I guess also to kind of touch base on this a little bit in terms of your last question about the common signs that I've seen of people who are starting to develop substance use disorders is when they're using substances to cope with something else that's going on. So if they're using Mm -hmm. substances as a way to manage their anxiety, as a way to manage their depression, that can be one tool that can help Mm -hmm. in the short term. But if they're using it over and over and repeatedly using substances to try to manage those things, that is a really high risk profile.
0: Yes, even in our field, there is this belief that people have about addiction being a moral condition. I have heard a lot in the healthcare field that people think that things such as lying or stealing mm-hmm. are symptoms of substance use disorders where to what my knowledge is, these are not symptoms and these are part of discrimination. What are your thoughts
1: about this? I completely agree with you. I, uh, oh, I, I, Yes, there's so many studies out there that show that there are so much bias that healthcare professionals have of that lying, stealing, dirty. Like there's really not a lot of evidence <laughs> to back that up with. Um, and yeah, I, I really do think it kind of goes back to how addiction treatment has developed in our country. I mean, substance use has been around for all of human time. And really, when addiction and substance use recovery has been kind of really took root in the United States, it was with the temperance movement. It was like Mm -hmm. a religiously based, I think it was Protestant, they were really kind of limiting or banning alcohol consumption. And it was seen as like, you are a sinner, you are immoral, you're being a transgressor against God. And kind of that with kind of the disease model has really created this idea of what addiction and substance use disorders are. And I think part of that identity is that there's that you're a sinner, you're you're wrong, you're you're corrupt, you're immoral.
0: Okay, I find the history of this very very fascinating. I grew up evangelical, I, I grew up Baptist, and so then something with the Baptists is um, at least in the Baptist sects that I grew up in, they banned alcohol, they banned substance use, and so mm-hmm. there was a lot of secretive substance use that would happen. There was a lot of substance use disorders. All behind closed doors? All behind closed doors. Yep. A hundred percent. I started doing a lot of research about the history of temperance and, and everything. Around that time, a lot of these women, whenever they were looking at women's rights, part of this too, they were looking at how they had been experiencing oppression in their homes and behind closed doors and getting physically abused, getting sexually abused. They were looking for a kind of reason for that. And, um, and so alcohol ended up becoming the scapegoat for that with part of this. I think it goes back to some of this grief that people who have survived abuse maybe looking at as part of this bargaining of questioning, why has this happened? And then blaming something that is not immoral, or moral, but something that is amoral, it is just a thing that does not have a moral to it, because it is just a thing. And so that's just kind of what I've learned from it. And I know that I'll keep learning about this and, you know, and my perspectives can change over time.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's such a good point. Thanks for, for bringing that up and going back to kind of that point of you growing up and there was a lot of substance use behind closed doors. If you have to do it behind closed doors, like, and it's completely banned in the community that you're with, how much guilt and shame has to come up? How difficult would it be to go seek treatment mm-hmm. or to say, I have a problem if the act that you're, what it is that you're doing is seen as bad?
0: Yes, Yes, definitely. Whenever I was working primarily in substance use disorder treatment and because whenever I started my therapy career, it was before New York State had really looked at things from a more integrative type standpoint. They had you know, more so separated substance use disorder treatment and mental health. Mm -hmm. disorder treatment. So this has changed since I started. But I would often get asked by people who were diagnosed with alcohol use disorder, when did this become an addiction for me? And I mean, my response is a simplistic response, where, you know, it's a lot more nuanced than this. But I would usually ask a question right back, when did you start drinking alcohol in secret? Mm. And whenever people would hear that question back it was just like you could see like a light bulb come on you know because there's a lot of shame that is involved in substance use disorders and I've thought about like wow like if substances and substance use could be talked about with less shame more acceptance more education more science then would we see less substance use disorders?
1: Yeah. Oh, I I love that question of when did you, when did you start doing this in secret? When did you, when did you start having to hide your use? I, I think that's such a beautiful and yeah, simple question for people to reflect on. And I really like that. Substance use disorders It takes a while to get there, a repeated pattern of use. And so it would be nice if we were able to talk about it more because, like I mentioned before, it is part of our culture. If we're able to start talking about it more, then we would be able to, one, prevent it from becoming bad or from starting to have problems. And two, we would be able to get people in the door for treatment sooner rather than later. Yes. Oh, Yes, (laughs) Yes,
0: <laughs> just like I, I wish that I kind of had like one of those foam cheering hands that they have <laughs> for like sports games. Cause yeah. like this, this is me right now. Like all these things that you're saying, like I'm like yes, like this is so important. <laughs> I am even thinking about you in the past. Let's say past ten years, how. Even just the words to be speaking about substance use disorders is changing. Whenever I started getting trained to become a therapist, the the words are changing, the, the verbiage is changing. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, I just caught myself saying that thing. Okay, I need to reframe this. I need to re-say this. Whenever I catch myself, then I do correct myself because I think that that's important to get into the habit of it. So- I want to throw out a few of these different phrases that have been changing. There's substance abuse that used to be used. And now, you know, we're switching things to substance use disorders. There's substance use, there's substance misuse, there's addiction there's addict there's alcoholic so i'm just throwing out a whole bunch of words out there <laughs> yeah. and i'm wondering what your thoughts are about these different words
1: well i can all <laughs> oh, yeah i know so much language and we see this often in society where we words and phrases start to change as they become stigmatized or or people start kind of feeling icky about saying them and then I'll change to something else. And then eventually that phrase will, will start to not feel okay. So we changed to something else. Um, it, I think it's an interesting, uh, phenomena that we have with so many different topics. First of all, I think the first person first language is incredibly important instead of using alcoholic or addict using you know, someone with addiction or someone with a substance use disorder, we see just that shift of that person first language uh, reduces stigma, not only from yourself internally, but also with healthcare providers, um, also with community members as well. Just that tiny shift where you put yourself before the problem, because you're more than just someone that has a substance use disorder you're more than that
0: Mm -hmm. I've got a follow-up question here for you about this because whenever I tried implementing person first language with people in addictions treatment (laughs) I was met with yes but
1: sorry I already know
0: I you already know what I'm gonna say (laughs) They say, but that's not what the big book says. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, you knew that that was exactly what I was going to say. That, that's why I was smiling there. Because, <laughs> you know, we may li- live and work in completely different places, but this is how much impact 12 Steps has had on people. Yes. And so, you know, so then what ends up happening is, you know, then there's people who say, well, I was able – to get sober because of 12 steps but they may not be sober at that point or they may have relapsed, and so trying to teach new skills but then it, it's hard because of how influential this has been and you know it's looked at as as being a bible in a way yeah so i'm wondering how you address that with empathy and compassion you know
1: yeah i i It's so important to acknowledge that AA and 12-step have helped so many people. And there are a lot of really great aspects to that, that community support where people come and are able to have that community of people who are also going through similar struggles. That is huge. That's amazing. And definitely something that's so important in that recovery of let me be in secret, let me really isolate and be alone. And now I have this network of people that are going to help me through this recovery. And I think that label of, you know, hi, I'm, you know, so and so and I'm an alcoholic, that really kind of places that identity for yourself. Cause I've, I've also heard that pushback mm-hmm. of, well, this is who I am. I have to focus on the fact that I'm an addict or that I'm an alcoholic um, because that comes before anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's some pros and cons to that approach because yes, especially when you're having a really severe disorder, you really have to pay attention to that. You really got to mm-hmm. work work on that. Keep that in your forefront of your mind that you are going through this struggle right now. It's immense. It's difficult. It's painful. And to not let that kind of slide away. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, if that's the only thing you're focused on, you're missing out on so many other things in life. You're missing out on, sure, you might have an addiction and you are also a parent. You're also really mm-hmm. good at playing this game or doing this sport or creating art or doing work. Or there's so many different things that can be missed if you're only purely focused on the fact that you are an addict. It part of me wonders even how much different it would be for the psyche
0: if in 12 step programs, if in introducing themselves, saying something like, Hi. My name is Kit. I'm an addict. I am a sister. I'm a cat parent, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Listing the different parts about how a person identifies so that it is not just
1: solely of what a person's diagnosis is. I love that, yeah. And I was also thinking, yeah, or you could, Simply change it to, you know, hi, I'm Sarah and I'm struggling with an alcohol use problem or I'm struggling with alcohol use disorder. Um, Definitely. I love this. Yeah.
0: Shifting it, reframing it so that, you know, it's not an either or type of a thing, you know, because people do get a lot of benefits from it. But I also know for people that it can also be more triggering. For them to be in these spaces as well. I think it gets really difficult whenever 12 steps is part of a person's mandate for Mm -hmm. treatment or part of a person's treatment plan. Whenever maybe the person practices a religion that is not an Abrahamic religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe the person is atheist you know and 12 steps are trying to do some more things that make it more inclusive like i've got um a book for agnostic or atheist clients where it's like the 12 steps for
1: agnostics and atheists
0: it's still tough yeah
1: even though 12 step and aa works For some people, it doesn't work for everyone and we shouldn't be telling people AA or 12-step is your only option. And that's really what is happening in so many different settings is that that treatment plan or that mandated court program is saying, you must attend AA groups. You must attend 12-step groups. From the research that I've read
0: Uh, something called peer support. So peer support means having people in your life who have struggled with similar things and who are also pursuing recovery and, and wellness, having those people in your life can be helpful. 12 steps are looked at as being peer support. And I'm wondering, what are some alternatives to 12 steps that are peer support that you've seen be really helpful for people with substance use disorders?
1: Well, I will say that Smart Recovery is... Oh, yes. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> Smart Recovery, um, I think Smart Recovery has programs all over the United States. It's smaller than AA or 12-step, but it, it it's growing. And it has a lot of great peer support groups with some with uh, mental health professionals, doing a lot of evidence-based work. I actually have, I'm looking at a workbook for them uh, right now. There's so many great, great tools that you receive in smart recovery. So that's, that's one option. I think it's called Phoenix. Have you heard of Phoenix? No, I haven't. I hope that's the right name, but Phoenix is a great sober activity group, where I think it's over a lot of different places where they will have pickleball and yoga and hiking. And the only requirement is that you are been sober for 24 hours, and you can go and meet up with people and, and do that activity, which I love.
0: I love that too. There's this place in Rochester, New York, I used to live in Rochester, but now I live in another place of New York. They have this place called Rockcovery. I'm sorry, i was laughing saying like, it because it's like, yeah, it's kind of, it, it's like a dad joke. It's like a, it's like a pun because Rochester is also known as rock like roc <laughs> and so it's just replacing recovery like the e with an o so it's rock recovery <laughs> i like that okay that is a
1: bad <laughs> joke
0: <laughs> it is yeah and and so they're they're pretty cool over there and they have um a gym there and so they will do fitness classes with each other uh I am based in the Adirondacks now, which are these gorgeous mountains. And so they will travel um, like five hours to go on like a hiking and camping trip in the Adirondacks. Oh, neat. Yeah. So these different things where I think that this is really, really cool. And I wish that there were some more things like this around.
1: Yeah, Well, and and I love that. And I... I I think there are so many, uh, well, more is needed, but what I think Mm -hmm. is really needed that I, and maybe you have some resources um, that I'm unaware of is are people who don't necessarily want to be sober because Mm -hmm. what I have found is that most community, uh, community supports, it's really that you're sober from everything. Um, or there's not any support system or network. And are you are you familiar with MHA? No, what is that?
0: So MHA is the Mental Health Alliance or Association. I'm trying to remember. Um, but with them, they are just what what I've seen. They've been really awesome, and so. Um, one place where I lived, they even had a needle exchange. Um, and so, which was great of having that so that people could reduce the risk of having transmitted infections from substance use. And they had different groups there. Um, they would have like arts groups, crafts groups, um, equine groups, um, just basically whatever was in the area, they would have different groups led by volunteers for it. Um, And they looked at things from a harm reduction model, which was very, very controversial in the community that I lived in, but um, it ended up really helping and saving lives.
1: I love that. I, yeah, People sometimes or some people think that harm reduction means promoting use. And that's really not what it's all about. It's, It's really aimed towards if someone chooses to use, how can we how can we support them to make sure that they're not going to use in a way that's going to cause significant adverse injury or death? and. Sometimes yes. harm reduction too is abstinence. Sometimes harm reduction is saying, mm-hmm. you know what, I, I know that once I start drinking, I'm going to keep starting so, or keep going. So I'm going to choose not to drink. That that is also harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Definitely, and I mean, I'm seeing more people becoming aware and accepting of this idea but i'm seeing it have more awareness and acceptance of an idea of for instance if a person was addicted to pill opioids or heroin or or fentanyl that then um they're like oh harm reduction okay methadone suboxone that's okay like uh, thumbs up, you know, but they don't look at harm reduction for other substance use disorders.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah. And the best harm reduction is the prevention of, of giving people informed knowledge for people to say, um, you know, if I'm going to use here are the ways that I can do it, that will, um, that will make sure that I am safe. Uh, but I, I do agree with you that a lot of people are becoming a lot more uh, lenient, or not lenient, um, accepting of methadone or or medication-assisted opioid use disorder. And it, you know, I'm curious to see as time goes on and as time progresses whether you know needle exchange programs and 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 other you know, harm reduction for other substances, whether that will become a little bit more um, accepted as well and less controversial. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Whenever I'm thinking about education too, I, I mean, it's, it could be really challenging to be changing, um, like, K through 12 education. Um, so I, I guess I'm I'm thinking... More along the lines of having some changes of university or, or college education about these kinds of things and then having those people start you know going into their communities and then starting to change the dialogue in, in their communities and, and also in their schools and I guess i'm I'm wondering if if you're seeing or noticing if there's a, a positive shift that's happening in colleges and universities of teaching people more about harm reduction rather than abstinence-based only education, or if you're still seeing that there's a lot of um, stigma and discrimination that's taught about substance use disorders.
1: Hmm. There's a little bit of both, I think. Um, mm-hmm. It There's still, you know, the, I, I guess when I, I think about, harm reduction, especially for younger, younger folks, I, 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 I kind of relate harm reduction with substance use with, um, harm reduction for sex, like the abstinence mm. only for sex education. We know that doesn't really work. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's the harm reduction where you're saying, if you're choosing to have sex, here are things that you can do to protect yourself. Um, mm-hmm. and so I, I have seen, uh, on university campuses that um, more of the uh, descriptive knowledge of, you know, if you're choosing to drink, this is how much drinks people tend to use. This is how much you might need to, um, you know, uh, to make sure that you're going to get home safely. Um, And so I do see some of that. And I think there is a lot of pushback for every harm reduction um, or for most harm reduction platforms still of people that are really afraid that that anything other than abstinence is promoting use. Mm, and okay. I, I think as with so many so many topics today, there is there is polarization mm-hmm um, mm-hmm. and that being said, I don't want to be completely downer. Cause I do think that there are a lot of positive changes happening and we, we have a lot more to go. I'm curious. What, what, yeah. what is your, what have you seen?
0: Oh, um, <laughs> I, oh, I think with part of my perspective of things that I've seen, I've seen some things that may be a little bit out of the ordinary. And why I say it like that is because, like I mentioned before, I I grew up evangelical. And so uh, because of that, like my undergrad, I was given like long story short, I was given no other option than to go to an evangelical university. It was either that or the streets for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I decided to go to Liberty university and, um, and like first semester, once I got there, I'm like, okay, I'm deconverting. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, I'm going to take as many credits as possible and I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> and so I completed my bachelor's in like two years. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. You were working hard. <laughs> I, I was,
0: I, wow, that, that's a, that's a story for another day, but um. But basically, in going to the largest um, evangelical university in the world, and, um, and just hearing the teachings there, and, um, and just hearing from other people's experiences in religious-based education, then what would end up happening is I would hear a lot different of education styles and um, and then sometimes what what happens is you know it's like we look at the religious um, people um, at, at this point and, and sometimes they have more financial means or more means to ways of scholarship to be able to um, get young people education at Christian universities so um, there's I guess there's just there's a lot of nuances of Christian universities and and Christian colleges and and so I guess with that you know I'm like okay there's still a lot of abstinence based only education that is happening there yeah um, and I mean and I grew up in the Bible Belt in public schools they were teaching abstinence based only education and I heard they're still doing that today yeah um, in 2023. And so I think it really depends upon how much influence does religious fundamentalism, this goes back to the temperance movement, how much does this have in forming curriculum um, and informing the educational policies um, that are happening? And if there are areas where um, religious fundamentalism Do not affect it as much, then I think that those areas are more open to harm reduction. Like I went to Indiana University for my graduate and fantastic university. um, But it was so fascinating because the professors that I had that were not religious taught harm reduction. (laughs) the professors that i had who were religious taught abstinence
1: wow so so such a distinct difference and that was the one variable that you picked out yep interesting i mean it makes sense (laughs)
0: yeah you know i i was a student who really wanted to get to know my professors you know i felt just like um in ways where i was like you know i didn't really care for my undergrad education i i did learn some good things but i was like okay like indiana university like this is where i really wanted to be and so i was like so i'm gonna take every opportunity to be able to learn which meant also getting to know my professors and that that was honestly um one of the greatest gifts i would say of my graduate program of having professors who were like yeah like you know I'll talk with you on the phone or you know or we can you know grab a bite or whatever you know um which was just really beautiful but I I think with part of this yeah (laughs) totally and I guess like as I'm saying this out loud I think part of this like people in our field need to be doing shadow work because otherwise then it's going to affect our responses
1: Hmm. Yeah. Can you say more about that?
0: Yeah. Like shadow work in a way like, um, for instance, like in my graduate program, our, the, the first year of it was about identifying our biases and challenging our biases and how that formed from our past experiences. And that's, um, like what I consider shadow work to part of it to, to be about, And so I don't think that this is something that is as taught in other programs um, from what I've heard from other folks. Um, And so I think that it would be good to be including this in education about identifying the biases rather than pretending like we don't have them and then challenging them.
1: Yes, we all have biases. We all have Uh, backgrounds that have influenced how we think and how we feel about different topics. And um, I, yeah, it it often does get missed or overlooked. And yeah, the importance of sitting down with yourself um, uh, and really just trying to understand what it is and how you've got to be where you are, where you currently feel certain ways about mental health problems or about substance use, about substance use problems. And also checking yourself that just because something worked for you doesn't mean it's going to work for your client or doesn't mean that it's yeah. the best solution for, for whoever it is that, that you're working with. Um, yeah, totally. And I think that that's one of the
0: beautiful parts about harm reduction because that's really incorporating the client into the treatment plan of looking at, um, you know, where do they see the substance causing the most issues in their life yeah. and then, you know, and, and, what can be shifting and changing. And I'm wondering if you could speak more to that about like, what is
1: harm reduction or how does that look like for folks? Yeah. Um, yeah. Such a big question because, again, it can be so different for so many people. And I really do think that it starts, as you were saying, with uh, talking with whoever it is that you're talking to about what it is that they want. I think oftentimes a lot of our, our treatment uh, services right now are kind of prescribed. Oh, you want to be sober. You're coming here to be mm. sober as opposed to saying, Hi, let's sit down. What is working for you and what's not working for you? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then once you talk with them and get a fuller understanding, a big comprehensive understanding about what it is that, uh, that's, that they're struggling with, what it is that they're hoping for, um, and uh, we can start getting a little bit of a better understanding of w- what are the different targets um, to enhance your quality of life. It's not it, the, sure, maybe being sober is part of getting a higher quality of life, but being sober doesn't mean you're going to have a great life. So mm-hmm. what, what can we do to make you have the life that is worth living? And mm-hmm. I think there are so many harm reduction techniques that can help people start to get, uh, to, uh, harm reduction techniques that can help people build awareness into what it is that's going to work for them. And um, I think some of that is a huge part of that is, is psychoeducation, education mm-hmm. about what substances are um, risk factors for different substances, um, normative uh, you know, how, how much people are are using again, because that when you, that like silo, if people are using, alone. Um, mm-hmm. there Sometimes, uh, you know, we, you know, if we're using alone, if we're not using around other people, it's hard to understand how much people are actually using. So having that kind of normative data, um, mm-hmm. uh, talking about pros and cons, there's pros and cons to everything. Let's talk about what it is that you really like about using. I think sometimes mm-hmm. people get afraid of that language, but There's a reason why people are using it's doing something for them. So if we can figure out what it is that it's doing, um, what the benefit is Mm then and what the consequences are um, Mm -hmm. really kind of tackling their insight into their frequency of use, why they're using, how much they're using when they started using um, and developing kind of intentional, um, intentional, set and settings, um, safety plans, starting if they want to reduce their use, figuring out small baby steps. And then also, if they do lapse, or if they do make a mistake, if they do go back to whatever it is that they don't want to be doing, have it be a a compassionate uh, area. It's not a you've Mm -hmm. lost all of your progress. The amount of times that I've seen someone um, in a, you know, abstinence based treatment program come back and they've relapsed and, you know, that thought of, well, I've had one, I had one drink, so I might as well have had 10 um, because all of my progress was lost. If we, (laughs) I, Mm -hmm. I'm. I wonder if you've experienced this because I feel like that's so prevalent of if I make a mistake, I've completely failed as opposed to, okay, I've made a mistake. Let me learn from that experience and keep moving forward. There's this thought that I had as you were saying that and it was,
0: please stop counting the days. Yeah. Yeah. Because in counting these days... There's so much dissonance of saying, hi, I'm Kit, I'm an addict, and I have X number of days sober. Right. Um, and it can really, um, there can be, it, it can increase risk for, for people. And, um, and that, that could be a, a whole other podcast <laughs> in and of itself, um, right. of, of talking about that. Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's hard.
1: Right. And you're also comparing yourself like, uh, Oh, well mm-hmm. I only have 30 days. So I, sh- you know, but I used to have, you know, five years on my belt. Um, it's yeah. like, <laughs> there's, it, yeah, there's, and there's also nuance to that too, right? Like if, if mm-hmm. that's your goal, then I, I want, I want you to celebrate that accomplishment. And, and if you just place all of that into your basket of if I ever have one use again, if I ever have one sip again, then, you know, take all those tokens away from me because I'm a complete failure That is so detrimental to any mental health, Uh, you know, that is kind of relating it to a depressive episode, right? Like if you, Mm -hmm. if, you know, you, you get out of a depressive episode, you say, okay, great. I'm so happy. And then once you go back in it, you know, are you a complete failure? No, you've learned tools. You're able to, to handle, um, you're able to know what to do in this time of need, um, and you're able to move through it as opposed to say, well, I've, I failed, might as well give up and, and go full fledged into whatever it is that, that I don't want to do. Yeah.
0: And, and part of it reminds me too of, you know, sometimes at weddings, they'll ask the question, okay, stand up. If you've been married 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, you know, and yes. everyone claps, 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 claps. And you have no idea what's happening behind closed doors in those relationships. Right. Um, And so, you know, I, I think a numbers game can be dangerous. Um, It's not always dangerous, but it can be. Um, And so I think um, there's, well, bringing in this phrase one day at a time Mm -hmm. and and that was a phrase that was taught to me by um, some of my patients uh, early on in my career. And it is just such a beautiful phrase, one day at a time. And I think that that's one of the best things that can really guide a person whenever being in the recovery
1: process. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. So important that one day at a time. Let's that's really that let's open up and let's experience what's happening right here, right now. And then we can move forward stronger Mm -hmm. to the next moment of time. Oh my goodness. Yes.
0: Well, I would want to keep talking to you for hours and hours, but I won't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've got one last question for you here. Um, If you could give your younger self one piece of advice about
1: liberation, what would that be? Yeah. Um, I love that you asked this question to, to all of your guests and it's been, it's been so wonderful talking with you. I, a younger self. And I, I, I think oftentimes when we find ourselves with addictions, we're often trying to run away from a difficult emotion Mm and try to suppress the quote unquote bad emotions. Um, -hmm. and if, but emotions they they tell us things about the environment. They're they're cues mm-hmm. to our body, right? Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: anger, there's we're perceiving that there's something unjust in this world. If we're anxious, we're perceiving that there's a threat in this world. And if we're able, so I guess like part of my advice is if we're able to open up about those difficult emotions, be curious about them turn towards them, not push them away, not try to suppress them, not try to drink or smoke or use um, to get rid of them. Then an interesting paradox happens that when you're willing to experience them, you can move through them um, and not be stuck with them. And Mm. when you try to suppress them, the difficult ones, the quote unquote bad ones, um, we also end up suppressing the ones that make us feel really good and happy. Mm. So, I think, and that's really hard to do. But my younger self, I think we all try to do it, and ooh, it's, it's so our bodies. We don't like uh, we don't like to run away. We don't like difficult things. We don't like um, things that make us uncomfortable. So it has to be an intentional turning towards looking at and then moving through. Mm. I wish that
0: that was something that I would have known whenever I was younger too, that there weren't good or bad emotions, that there were just emotions and that, you know, we
1: can really learn from them and that it can be some of our greatest teachers in life. Definitely. Yes, they really, really are. And just because we have them, you know, we can place as much stock as we want in them. But they're just tidbits of information that can, that can help us. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining today. This thank has just right. been
0: such a lovely conversation.
1: Same. It's been wonderful. And uh, uh, yeah, really excited to chat with you again soon. Yes, definitely. I'll talk with you later. Okay, bye. Bye.
0: enjoyed this podcast please rate and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and if you would be interested in being a guest on this podcast reach out to me in my instagram which is the liberated porch